out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of the indie band Daniel Takes a Train, who have a new album out January 2021. Indeed, great timing. It's titled Last Ticket to Tango. And now, for those who may or may not know the band, um, yes, they were around in the late 80s or mid 80s, as you'll hear in the interview. Anyway, they split, and then 30 years later, the record, uh, the German record label, Fire Station Records, run by UV, I do believe, and possibly someone else, um, decided to get in touch and put out a compilation of the band. So suddenly they got a new album 30 years later. That was the, the um, original material back in the day. But um, they've managed to keep it going and have released this album. So you'll hear lots more about that. So I won't spoil it all for you because, frankly, we're going to go through that in great detail because I spoke to the guitarist. In fact, it is Dan or Daniel singing. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to the exciting subject that was his early formative musical years. We are slightly the same age. Anyway, Daniel, tell us more. Tell us now. Obviously from the same generation, probably have similar musical references. And um, I didn't really get going in the band until I met Paul, the, the, the singer, sings. And um, he was really into pop music in a way that I wasn't. And, but we did bond over a love of the Smiths. Um, before before that, I'd been in school punk bands and I'd played lots of sort of youth clubs and things like that, but hadn't really taken music very seriously. But with Paul, uh, he had a very song, strong sense of melody and I began to write tunes for him. And I guess that's what we're still doing now. Um, Paul has a very pop, clear voice. And um, I like all sorts of things. Before I, we did this album, I was doing a film music course and I was getting together a band uh, with, with a sort of glamtronic feel. We had a mixing glam with electronica. I'm not sure anyone else is doing that, but um, so this has almost took us in a completely different direction. And it's a very poppy album, I think. And I think it's got, for people like you, it's got lots of references possibly to things you might have listened to in the late 70s or early 80s. Yeah. And the things that I liked when I was at school, like um, New Wave or, or Glam Rock or Scar, or, and, and just sort of more energetic music. Because I think people who know about Daniel Takes a Train always assume we are 80s, which possibly means padded shoulders and synthesizers and... We weren't, we weren't that. In the 80s, we were a very primitive band with sort of old guitars and old amps. We were not channeling Phil Collins or um, Rio. So, um, but we're trying to do that now. We're sort of 30 years later, we've sort of discovered this. Yes. <laughs> well, actually, when I was listening to the new album, there was two kind of musical kind of genres that came out. There was one which was interesting. You mentioned Scar because it was kind of like that um, had that two tone quality to it. And also the vocal was quite Martin Fry from ABC at times. It kind of reminded me of, um, yes, that kind of sound. Well, that, you see, the, the, 
the track you might be talking about is called um, Last Ticket to Tango. Yes. Um, and that literally came about not long ago. We, Paul, we had to finish the album. We didn't have a, what's called an album title song, like a, a working title for the album. But uh, Paul just threw out this line, Last Ticket to Tango, which sounds very ABC in itself. And then he had this song that was literally a Martin Fry ripoff. I said, we can't do that. We, we really can't be as shameless as that. So I wrote something else, which had a similar feel. And it, it was, that was the last track on the album. So um, I think Paul would be kind of happy to admit there, there is an ABC reference there, but we didn't have Trevor Horn with us to kind of um, no. orchestra in. Oh, okay then, because it did, you know, because after a while I kept thinking, you know, as it was playing through, thinking, you know, it was, uh, and I might be getting confused with a few of the other earlier songs, but there was that kind of two-tone rhythm that was kind of chugging along in the background in a slightly merry mm -hmm. way and thinking, oh yes, that's definitely, you know, the first, reminds yeah, me. The first, the first track on the album is called Sleeping With The Enemy, and we wrote it um, because I, I just wanted to write a Scar song. I, when we played live, we just... Uh, ran through this music and I thought, well, when, you, when you're standing on stage and people are dancing, you kind of start to work out what people like. Yes. And for some reason, they're going to like a, a tune that they could sort of jump up and down to. I don't, I don't think Scar is a very complicated music to, to move to. It just gets everyone moving. So, um, and then we sort of came across this idea of doing a James Bond tribute. Uh, and then we threw in some Cold War references and then it became a sort of, a, if you like, early James Bond reference to, you know, Scar, Doctor No, and obviously with the pop beat and, and there's a, even a rap in the middle, um, which I'm not responsible for, but it works. <laughs> yeah, so when you were making this, obviously this was pre-COVID, wasn't it? So you didn't have that kind of experience of what was going to happen next. Interesting. I mean, we... we decided to do an album last year, but we only had six tracks. So we were, we were recording this time last year, but it just so happened the studio time we booked happened to coincide with periods where studios were open, which was sort of a miracle. And we knocked them out pretty quickly. So we had you know two days in one studio, two days in another. And we were surprised sometimes that the engineers were working. Um, we found a studio near me actually in southeast London, run by a guy who has uh, he literally 300 yards from our front door, and he produced um, people like Katrina and the Waves in the 80s. He, he actually produced their big hit called I think it was Walking on Sunshine. Oh my God, that was just everywhere, wasn't it? Yeah, and um, so he's got this sort of if you like new wave indie cred. And he was brilliant. And he looked at our songs and he completely understood, got what we were doing. And um, I think the skill of a producer like that is to, to, to give it the pop edge. Otherwise, yeah. it becomes just a lot of music, you know. And um, so we're quite fortunate, A, to have met him and B, to have recorded it within the year. Well, absolutely. And this is Pat Collier, who's kind of got quite a CV, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, he, he did a lot of sort of post-punk bands. Um, but the, I think the big one is the 
Katrina and the Waves. Yes, it's interesting because um, actually with a lot of producers, I realise, and it's a little bit like the photographers, some of the photographers, they have a four, three to five year narrative, don't they, where they, they have a sound that captures a time, you know, that when we were growing up, you know, a lot of people would talk about Mickey Most. I'm sure he's still alive, but you didn't really realise that actually Mickey Most disappeared quite quickly because there must have been a sound that came along in the 70s where he was just like this isn't my scene is it and, and I'm not going to change and it's like well tough luck a bit like you mentioned Trevor Horn I mean Trevor Horn in the 80s was everywhere wasn't he you know alongside Phil Collins you everywhere you went you'd oh no it's Phil Collins you know he's just in my face all the it time. It takes a while for people to rediscover them doesn't it yes I mean for example I I didn't I was too young to really sort of wear glam rock clothing and, and going to see David Bowie, but uh, it didn't really grab me as much um, at the time. But like, it's something you can dip into later. Yes. And so were you, when you were growing up in say the seventies, were you obsessed with music? Had you picked up a guitar or keyboards or were you sort of kind of studying music in a slightly teenage way? Well, I, I was um, taking trumpet lessons at school, but got completely distracted by things like the Beatles, and I even cut out guitars out of old cardboard boxes and used to mime to the Beatles. This is long after they split up. Yes. <laughs> and um, <laughs> then I guess the whole punk thing enabled people like me to just um, to jump on board and form bands and not to worry about how terrible our playing was. No, and, uh, it, it, it was a green light because I've sort of, I realised for me, indie pop was between the years of 83 to 87 which was the years of the smiths which were like the big band weren't they because up to then you had the punk scene and then the post-punk scene with people like the gang of four and peel wire possibly the nightingales and, and marky smith and the four were coming along and then you had those few bands who were probably pretty influential like echo and the bunny men and julian Coe. but i think it was when the smiths appeared it was like it felt like this was something i mean yeah, this was this was a start of something quite major, and then so suddenly then, this kind of wave of indie bands appeared. I think that's the thing. I mean, Paul and I really sort of bonded over the Smiths thing. Uh, I think I remember playing this charming man down the phone to him, <laughs> and he was, you know, he, I don't know what he did. Like maybe he ran to the record shop and bought the single, but it was that sort of light bulb moment that we we should be in a band as well. But in hindsight, I don't think it was easy to be like the Smiths because actually their playing was, certainly the guitar playing was pretty competent, uh, way above what I was doing. And um, I think a lot of singers copied his vocal mannerisms and tried to write vaguely pretentious lyrics uh, very badly. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know what, he's, what they spawned, um, but at least it got us going. And I think, um, plus their Englishness, the fact that they represented you know, you, you can sing about your local supermarket or you can sing about going to the library, um, which which was very exciting. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, and you know, during that period, I found it incredibly exciting because then you had all those other bands like the June Brides and the Wolfhounds and Yeah, Yeah, No. You know, it was certainly a wave. And then, you know, the NME brought out that famous cassette, the C86 cassette, which had 22 tracks with people like The Wedding Presents and Fuzzbox and... Um, yes, Jesus and the Mary Chain, or it might not have been that. It might have been Primal Scream. Um, yes, classic band. So, when did the band form? When did you sort of, sort of 
call yourselves the name and went, that's it? We had a really, we had a couple, couple of years where we were called uh, a terrible name, Illicit Kiss. And I'm not quite, so we, at that time we were, I was into things like everything but the girl and the Smiths and Lloyd Cole. And uh, I just wanted to wear like suede jackets and right. big guitars. And Did you, uh, did you watch Betty Blue by any chance? Of course, yeah. Excellent. Um, I didn't have the, the bath, the, the, the bath in the middle of the room. But oh, that, I think that, that, was, um, that was Diva actually on that one, but... Uh, oh, sorry, yeah. Um, that's fine, any French film which, you know, I think that had that... that there was sort of, so there was a moment where we were into that sort of guitar-y sound, and then um, I suppose as the band, then we became Daniel Jakes for Train, and suddenly the shift was more sort of jazz, sophisticated pop, we're talking sort of 1987, um, and that's when, it, to me, it got a little bit boring. But um, I think all bands evolve, and I think you have you have to keep changing. And I think um, that's the great thing about doing an album now is that you're you can do anything you like. So we do have a, a scarish track. We have a a track that sounds like uh, I don't know, just like a rock and roll track or or a synth pop track like "Song for the Brokenhearted." We've got a song called Honeymoon, which sounds like Motown. So, you know, we're just throwing it all in there. And I think because we've lived a long time, we've soaked up a lot of influences. Um, we, not say we have more to say, but we have more tricks up our sleeve than we yes. did in 1985. And, and probably, you know, the technology's moved on. Did the band, how long did the, uh, the band in the 80s last for? When did you? Yeah, um, we, Probably active between 84 as this other band called Illicit Kiss, and then probably a couple of years doing Daniel Traits of Train. And around, around 1988, I decided I'd had enough. Uh, it wasn't sort of going anywhere. We had, I think we were trying to get a big record. In those days, you could get a big record deal with a big advance and used to read about bands. Uh, I think there was a band called the Roaring Boys who famously got, you know, a million pounds advance. And we were after that sort of thing. But you can tell when your moment has gone. And the last gig we did was at the Lewisham Labour Club, uh, attended by about, I don't know, half a dozen people. Whereas a few weeks before that, we played at Ronnie Scott's. So um, I decided to, to, to I, I, I went to travel to Spain to, to work as an English teacher. I think I was right. The others won't agree with me, but I think I was correct in this decision because shortly afterwards, the whole music scene changed and guitars were completely out. And it was, um, you know, DJs and house music, Chicago house. And we, we, if we carried on, we probably would have just soaked that up as well and in a really bad way. Mm. I think I did the right thing. Well, it's interesting because my... My theory, which isn't completely watertight, but I quite like it, was that in 87, you know, was the sort of year when the Smiths finished. They felt like the end of the party. And if you hung around, you were going to be stuck in the kitchen doing the washing up. And it was all a bit messy, really. And it, it definitely changed. And there was like the Smiths breaking up. Then ecstasy came along and there were suddenly people. And as you just mentioned, you know, the Chicago house sound and acid house had happened. And people were sort of, you know, 
with smiley faces taking lots of ecstasy and there definitely was a mu mu musical mu movement and what I've noticed is that the 16 to 18 year old who's kind of got that moment where they can dedicate all day every day to music or whatever they are into you know that generation wants their their sound they don't want a band that had been around four years you know that they want their kind of band don't they if you think about when we were growing up that period where you realize in the early 70s the Beatles had only just broke up but we had sort of the Beatles for us were, were just kind of like they were long gone weren't they you know but they'd yeah. only broken up a couple of years and we'd already moved on to the kind of incredibly exciting sound of Gary Glitter and wanted to be well, my first album, the first album I bought was a, a music for pleasure album for Rider White Swan which is basically old T-Rex songs repackaged nice uh, and this was in about 1974 or something but and there, but I mean, a couple of years later, Mark Boland was finished. You know, he was um, seventy-five. He was already on call. And uh, I think the eighties is interesting because we we did actually ride a couple of movements. As I said we were in the indie pop area. We were in the what's now called sophisticated pop, which is sort of Sade, that kind of you know. It was a very London scene. I think these you know animal light life Sade, jazz. But not not playing jazz, but sort of um, aspiring to jazz, if you like. Um, well, it was always you could always tell, wasn't it? Because it was the bass player, you know. He depend what the bass player was holding, how he was holding his bass, <clears throat> made you realise he might have had a sort of a, a jazz pop fusion sound, and probably like Jaco Pistorius or somebody like that. Well, we we played a version of Moon Dance at the Ronnie Scott's Club. We supported a band called the Jazz Defectors, I think. And uh, I just think the gall of playing this this song, you know, really, <laughs> it wasn't bad. But it was just a bit like a pub pub band playing a Van Morrison <laughs> cover, but we did it. And that's when you're young, you do that stuff like that, don't you? And um, <laughs> luckily, there is no recording of that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's where the band might have broken up, wasn't it? Musical differences covering it's Van Morrison. But yes. the point is that we, we do have musical differences, but we're all working towards Daniel Taser train sound. Yes. Today. So then, so when you, you had your, you know, Jim Morrison moment and you called it the end, kind of, did you all just kind of, did, was everybody slightly in agreement? Did it, did it feel like it was the end? I think, there, I think there was a school of thought that if you work hard enough at something, and you do the gigs and you, you know, you do demos, you'll get somewhere. But I, I don't agree with that. And I think they think that they would have got signed eventually. But, um, you know, for me, it's important to have a musical journey that, that is exciting. And um, it's exciting getting back with the band and, and making an album and making a very almost like contemporary sounding album in 2020 without having to make an album that's um, rooted in guitar pop or, um, you know, say indie bands from the 80s. Yeah, absolutely. Which is great, but uh, we've done that. Yeah. Did you, I mean, because obviously everyone loves this story that, you know, and a lot of bands, you know, to be honest, a lot of bands I interview, from that period you know they have that five-year narrative in the 80s they get together the honeymoon period the first album not too bad if they get a John Peel play even more exciting which often gives them that bit of hope that you had in the 80s um the second album things aren't growing terribly well by then unless you're you know 
the Smiths or U2 or somebody like that. Mostly it's like things are starting to sort of go. And then by the second or third album, people have just had enough because A, they've got fed up with each other and no money. So that's always kind of it. So did you, when you sort of walked away, did you, I mean, with the band, you'd recorded all this stuff, but you never really put it out. Did, did it, was it just something that you personally had thought, well, you know, that's in the attic and who cares and get on with the rest yeah. of your life? That's interesting. I mean, obviously someone did pick up on us eventually, which was great. Um, but it was nearly 30 years later and we did have enough material to fill an album called Star Charm Commotion, which came out on Fire Station uh, two years ago. Uh, and they are, they're quite good demos, you know, but some of them, some of the songs are better than others, but um, it does mark a sort of full stop on that time. Yes. Um, it, it feels strange to play those songs now because they're, they're written from a very, well, someone who could hardly play guitar and someone who didn't know much about life uh, and was just imitating stuff he heard on the radio. Um, Whereas I think today's songs are more, they're more us. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I don't know what I did later. I, did, I probably didn't play guitar for 20 years, but I think I went off and joined a jazz band and played piano. I, was, I did something completely different musically. Yes. And I think people do find their way back. And um, it wasn't, it was a great time, but I think, you know, anyone who's, trying to be successful in music has to know how far they can take it before they should start up another project. Um, yeah. All projects work, do they? You can't expect all, pro I mean, the thing about Daniel Taylor Train, it works because we know each other and but we also know our limitations and what we can and can't do. So we keep it within those parameters. So um, I'm never gonna off, I'm never gonna go off and do an electronic album with members of Daniel Tate to train without uh, vocals. Um, yeah. Because they wouldn't enjoy it. And I, I think uh, with Daniel Tate to train, you know that there's a chorus coming, there's probably a sax solo, uh, it, it might be quite catchy uh, at the beginning, um, but not all music's like that. Yes, you're not going to make your low album, are you? Well, if I, I'd have to relocate to Berlin or somewhere like that. So, um, unfortunately, Sorry. I can't go anywhere right now. I could make a, I could make an album in Forest Hill. Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, did it? Um, I know you're keen on the new album. You know, when you sort of realised that the band it got this interest two years ago with Fire Station Records, and then you started sort of looking at your, you know, like. Did you still have your original guitar and various stuff in the cupboard? And you started thinking, my God, I've, I've better buy some new strings and sort of remember how to play some of these songs. That's, that's a really good question because um, I really struggled to play the songs we'd played 20 years before when, when we got back together. And um, as I said, I had, you know, when you play guitar, you have to play every day. Otherwise your fingers go soft and you can't hold the strings properly. Yes. Um, and I'd, be, I'd been sort of in bands playing mainly keyboards. And um, so, yeah, it felt like, um, you know, we had to have a few rehearsals. Um, and the first gig was really nerve wracking. We had to play at this venue called the Troubadour and it was sold out. And the bass player had to come down from his house in Nottingham and 
we only had one rehearsal and I think it was a bit, you know, we were sort of, I think we were doing phone call rehearsals, which is not ideal, but it will work. It really did work because we, we stuck to our guns. We thought, well, we won't do anything too pretentious. We'll just play the songs we know, the songs we think are the more outstanding ones. Yes. And luckily it went down really well. Um, it wasn't a time for virtuoso playing. <laughs> <laughs> and did you, um, yeah. And no one mentioned the Van Morrison moment. We didn't play Moondance. Thank either. God. Um, when there, there was, you know, you, you do become quite critical about your back catalogue. I think there were some pretty awful songs we could have played. We luckily sort of passed. Yes. Did you um, feel, because I remember coming across this, um, there was a, there's one of those series, it was BBC Four on a Friday night, and they had about bands reforming. And obviously they're sort of very mixed experiences. And... Um, from bad to just terrible, and we should have never done it. And there's a couple of which haven't been too bad, but then when the, the police kind of reformed, you know, everyone was having a great time apart from two of the three members. And, you know, there was like a tour which was worth millions. So everyone thought, let's make it work, please. You know? So they had band therapy. Did you, as a, you know, when you, obviously you had your honeymoon period of sort of, you know, this, you know, fire station putting out the record and sleeve notes, and it must have been quite nice to archive all this and have it, but then, meeting each other and thinking oh right we're going to start playing music again and thinking of this new album which is quite ambitious did you have to sort of have a few you know like band therapy moments well, i think we had almost like a quite a say stressful time but we had a a very weird time shortly after reforming because a a manager turned up who had been recommended by someone and he had all these big ideas for us and so, you know, from thinking, oh, let's do a couple of gigs in London and get our friends down. He was suggesting we might get a record deal or we might go on tour. And he was coming up with these wild plans to, to go to, for example, he wanted us to go to Norway um, on breakfast TV because that's where bands broke in Scandinavia. And so we were, and then, you know, the worst, well, the most ridiculous thing was, you know, we were going to be doing the, the, I think it was one of the major telecommunications companies were looking for a song to do their Christmas campaign. So we asked our single was going to be their tune and we were going to re-record it in Abbey Road. So you can imagine, you know, we're all in our 50s, so we're, we're a bit experienced, we're a bit, you know, we're not stupid kids anymore. But you know, we're getting a slightly swept along by this and thinking, well, you know, some of us might want to leave our jobs soon. <laughs> and um, so there was a lot of excitement, but it, all the excitement turned out to be completely misplaced. And that I think did create some difficulties with relationships in the band because, you know, some were more trusting than others. And um, luckily this manager's disappeared. I don't know where he is, but, um, he did cause a lot of trouble and um, yeah. the thing is he couldn't even get us a gig. You know, we, we, did, all, we did all the management ourselves and um, he was like a hanger-on who, who lied to us. Um, I don't want to talk about him all night, but <laughs> it did sour the comeback, if you like. Yes. And then we, sort of, then we came back and we thought, well, you know, after he disappeared, with, you know, we came down with a bump and then what do we do? Do we want to do this? And then... I suppose on the plus side, we'd started to write some new songs and that really 
that have got us to where we are are now. You know, we've managed to complete the album, write the new songs, and um, yeah, so there we've done <laughs> we've done something at last. Yes, and obviously having the project to do the new album gave it the focus as well. Yeah, I think with lockdown, you see, we 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 sort of got back to gigging and done a few gigs, uh, club gigs, and um, but you know we weren't able to sort of play early last year, and then we started doing these. I know, probably a lot of bands you've talked to have done these lockdown videos where they, you know, the, the vocalist was singing through a phone and then sending me the the vocal, and I was putting it together in my home studio. And it's not a very satisfactory way of working, but it can be done. Um, so we were doing these sort of sort of side projects, but then we thought, well, let's let's finish the album, um, and then we can discuss where we're going with this. Yeah. So I think um, early last year we had, as I said, we had four or five tracks in the bag, which is not an album. I think you need at least ten or eleven tracks to to complete it. So. Um, you know, we were just lucky to go back to studio two times, you know, two or three times more. And I think I am so pleased with the results, uh, especially with Pat Collier's work in um, Prairie Studios. He's yeah. given us a real commercial edge, which we thought we didn't have. Yes, I know. Well, that that's, yeah, as, we, as we were saying, it's sort of, has those kind of echoes of, of sort of two-tone and also ABC. I mean, are you still on Fire Station Records? No, they, they Fire Station um, put out the album called Style, Charm and Commotion, which is our retrospective album with, which you, where you'll find all our original 80s music. Yes. Um, but they didn't, obviously we don't have enough material for another one. And um, they only put out retrospective albums anyway. Right. Um, I think this album was mainly aimed at the Japanese market who are very avid collectors of 80s indie pop. Yes, Vinyl Japan. That was quite one of those labels, wasn't it? And you also, with this <coughs> one, you also had contributions from various other people, including, um, is it Jem Kelly, who was in the Lotus Eaters? Yeah, Jem, Jem was in a band called the Lotus Eaters. Um, actually long before Daniel Takes the Train, they had a, I think it was a top 40 hit with a song called uh, First Picture of You. And I think Jem was discovered a lot when this mad, mad, mad manager was at his worst. This is no, no disrespect to Jem, but um, I think the manager wanted us to sort of do collaborations with 80s people. Right. Like so they tried to find Mark Harmon, can you believe? And someone from the, I was nothing to do with this, but someone from the Icicle Works was going to come and play guitar for us. But they found Jen, and he uh, played on one of the tracks which we recorded at BBC Kent live. Um, so yeah, that was that was a nice moment for us. Yes, absolutely. He was never seen a game after that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. It's amazing you haven't got Sinead O'Connor on vocals, actually. Because um, well, the manager had uh, was trying to get a band ready for me and Jem at the same time with uh, another singer. It was all very complicated, but he was basically lying to so many people 
and no one knew what to believe. But um, my God, I think the Jem Kelly thing was quite nice and positive. And also, Jem was lecturing at uh, a university in Buckinghamshire, and they had a really nice studio. And he put us on to student uh, producer who did our couple of tracks on the album, which was great. So uh, thank you, Jem, for the contact. Yes, and and there's also I haven't come across these guys like Keith Jones, Steve Barnes, Luke Hannington, Sam Butcher. Are these all sort of other musicians who are part of the band or part of the recording process? Yeah, I mean uh, the band is four four or five people, but obviously you know over the years we've had all sorts of people playing with us live. Um, For example, some of them are. Friends of James, who's a drummer. Um, oh yeah, um, Paul the sax player plays in a Steely Dan tribute band. Nice. Is it called Neely Dan or something? <laughs> <There's> so <laughs> many. But, um, Keith is their piano player, so he gave us a nice sort of bluesy piano sound on one of the tracks. And um, yeah, I don't. I mean. They're not big names, but I, I think they've all made their. Con- I mean, it's interesting. The the uh, we had backing vocalist who lives in Barcelona, who who basically sent her backing vocals in online. So um, you know, in the COVID period where you couldn't get more than six people in the studio, we couldn't That's... bring a backing singer in. So we had to get them to record it in their home, and then then use it in the studio. So it's quite interesting. You can now work with people. From all over the world, um, just by you know sending music to each other. Yeah, because I was talking to a guy who was the in the band that was in the early nineties, Jellyfish, and he and he was kind of he'd done, I think either bass or guitar, and he'd played on Noel Gallagher's album, and he said, "Oh yes, I'm, I'm working on the new Sinead O'Connor album, and just sending tracks over to them, you know, so they'll be getting them because he's in. I think he was in LA, so it's an eight-hour difference. So I mean, it just it's the way that people seem to make a lot of music now. It's just like phone up somebody you know who can do the bass line anywhere in the world and just say, could you just do this for me? And um, let's see how it goes. So that's quite good. I realised that Jim, he was also in a band called the Wild Swans, wasn't he, as well? Yeah. From Liverpool. So, um, they yeah, were so they, they sort of connect us to the Liverpool scene. Uh, and there's another, late, there's another band called Candy Opera. Oh, yes. We're on Fire Station and... They, they would have gigged around the same time as the Lotus Eaters. Yeah, because they had quite a story as, as, as well. So does that mean then that this is a label that you've created yourself for the album? Oh, which label is that? No, is it, are you now on your own label putting oh, this out? Yeah, uh, we don't, yeah, we, we, um, we put the album out under the Roseville Music label. Right. So it's our first release. Um, again, it's our first venture into sort of releasing our own music um, through Bandcamp. And um, so far it's going really well. We've sold quite a few CDs, uh, a lot of downloads. Yes. And, uh, you know, because we're all, I mean, I used to be a journalist and Paul used to be a manager of a, in a company and, we're all bringing skills that could possibly, you know, sell the music to 
a wider audience. And like tomorrow, we've got an interview with a radio station in in the USA. So um, it's really nice to share this music beyond our sort of friends and family confines, you know. Yes, absolutely. And in theory, you know, if next year it gets a little bit different and we can go out, have you got plans of uh, doing some dates and tours then around the, around the place? I mean, ideally we would be touring this now because, um, for example, in the, down the road from us, there's a, an old ballroom called the Rivoli Ballroom. Oh God, I went there once many years ago. <laughs> so that would be the perfect place to launch Last Ticket to Tango. Yes. And we'd have you know, velvet jackets on, and we, it might be a bit ABC, and it might be um, a bit sort of come dancing, and it'd be a great evening. So it would that... be a very nice evening, I have to say. Yes, <laughs> I, I went there on, on the sort of, you know, the ballroom dance kind of uh, expedition. So yes, it would be good. So theoretically, you might be on the road doing some dates. I think because, because we've all got you know, a lot of commitments. We, we're generally not going to be a touring band, but we would definitely like to set up some special appearances. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's what we've always done. We've always been quite choosy about where we play and um, we're not likely to sort of be fifth on the bill to a band, uh, you know, go on stage at six o'clock in the evening, but um, depends. I mean, I think, I think, you know, I hope, whatever we do matches the studio versions of <laughs> what we've done. And I think um, we, we're aware that, you know, to put on a good show is, takes a lot of work. Um, again, in answer to your question, I think we'll just have to wait and see because um, even if we were booked in somewhere in May, I, I wouldn't guarantee that would go ahead. No, it's um, it's quite optimistic, isn't it, really? Let's face it. But anyway, so I guess you're just going to see how this one goes before committing to any more kind of recordings. I think the idea is, you know, let's get it out there. Let's see if people like it. Let's see if people want Daniel Takes a Train to play more gigs or, or um, release more music. Um, for, me, for me, personally, it's just great to to put a proper full stop to the, the, which is a great story of a band being discovered 30 years too late, mm. uh, getting back together, playing live gigs, writing some fantastic new music, and then recording it in a really great studio down the road. And uh, that's it. That's as good as it gets for me. So did you find, or have you found sort of, original fans who have kind of come out of the woodwork who have who a found the you know the first compilation that came out two years ago as well as you know sort of discovering the new album you know have you been slightly amazed with that kind of uh, response I think when when we were originally putting the album out in 2018 we had a kind of crazy response from what you might call mainstream media and we were on things like ITV News, uh, LBC, phone, that sort of thing. Uh, so there weren't music programs such as your own. Yes. They weren't interested in the music, but they were interested in the story. And that story has brought a lot of people to us. Yeah. Who were really quite curious more than anything else to see, A, if it was true and what, what did they actually sound like? 
because they would not have heard of us in the 80s unless they were you know uh, going to certain clubs in London but um, so it, it remains a good story but I suppose now we're we've sort of told that story so now we're trying to basically get people to hear the music yeah absolutely and um, there are some amazing people who found us and support us and they buy the CD and you know they retweet everything we put out and uh, we see them at gigs um, but there aren't enough of them if there were sort of thousands <laughs> of people like that you know it's, it feels like a small club at the moment yes and, um, you know it, I would love the club to be a bigger one it's a, an all-embracing club of um, you know after all we do the music is very um quite eclectic you know it could draw in 80s fans as well as indie fans it could draw in I don't know sort of classic rock fans even so um it's a broad church and uh, we'd, we'd love more people to discover us yes I mean did you I mean I was just thinking on a personal level has it sort of given you a bit of a I don't know adrenaline shot in your life this kind of new <laughs> excitement. I mean, because obviously, you know, we trundle along and one day you think, you know, now in my mid fifties, it's like a bit strange I got here. And, and you start thinking about life a bit. And then, you know, having kind of exciting things that have come along kind of are a relief in a way, you know, you just say, oh, thank God that's happened. Otherwise it all becomes a little bit samey. And I suppose being in a band is, is the ability to, not to sort of try and go down on your knees during a guitar solo because <laughs> you might not get up again, but um, but you know just that kind of excitement of like blimey, we're we're still playing music. I didn't see this happening when I was in my thirties and forties. Yeah, I mean, you know, especially this year where you have not been a lot going on, and the music gives you a real sense of purpose, especially you know something as fine like it's putting an album together it's a lot of detail you know it's not just playing music it's designing it's um you know spelling the names of songs correctly and, and you know organizing design and print and marketing now of course um it's a, it's like a little job in itself um but the music has really personally the music has kept me sane in this most terrible of years and i think the rest of the band would probably agree with me um, so yeah, we're all lucky to have the, the music muse among us. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I can imagine that, um, yes, being able to focus on something creative rather than getting obsessed with social media or something would be um, quite depressing, really. I mean, well, it's, it seems strange that we've done music, but we're not actually playing it. You know, we're not rehearsing. We're not. We're not going to. We're not doing gigs. So it, it feels like we're in a bubble of some sort. Probably a bit like your show. Um, you rely on feedback, don't you? And you, you really need feedback from people to to reassure you that what you're doing is is good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, otherwise. But like, you know, I mean, just briefly, I mean, in the old days, you just had those kind of very set gatekeepers. You had the music papers, you had people like John Peel and also other radio shows, but there was definitely, you know, it was good, but it was quite limiting. Whereas now there's, there's it's more diluted, but you can get out there and you can, obviously have your music all over the world can't you you know being sort of yep. you know on any social media platforms and you know kids like it and you're on Spotify and stuff like that so I'd imagine it will sort of grow in that in that way yeah it probably won't grow you know 
quickly like a sort of top 10 single, but it would, I mean, I'm very happy for someone to discover this in five years time, it'd still be there. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and therefore, you know, by then we'll be doing something completely different, but, you know, let's face it, people are, I mean, my daughter's discovering the Beatles now. So, um, you know, albums have a longer shelf life, I think, than, than anything else. And, yes. um, this is true. So look, last question. If you could have said something to an 18-year-old, you know, what advice would you give? What advice or wisdom have you got over the decades? You know, if you could have said something to an 18-year-old self starting out that you, you have that experience now, I just wonder what you would say to them. Well, uh, I think, um, I wouldn't say don't do music. I mean, I've done music since I was 16 as a, as a hobby. I'm still doing it now. I, I, at 18, I wouldn't have dreamed I'd be doing this uh, in my 50s, but um, you still get the same excitement from it. Um, Why well, was, I think the problem with Danish training in the 80s, which isn't the problem now, but I think we tried to create music that was professional sounding and slick and um, whatever the music industry thought music to sound like, we tried to copy it. Mm -hmm. And I would advise my younger self not to do that. I would advise them to just do anything else. That. Um, to do something that really reflects your personality, who you are and, you know, where you're from. And um, I think, you know, I had a, there was a, I, we did a cassette in the eighties and I brought it back and I was, went to my girlfriend's house and I was really excited and I, I put it on the cassette deck. I said, what do you think of this? And, you know, obviously my ears were ringing. It was a really exciting day with the three tracks. And all she could say was it, it, it sounds really professional. But that, that's the worst thing you can say about music, isn't it? And um, because a robot can sound professional. So I just think, um, go out there and do it, you know, and yes. don't even, Play guitar if you can't. I mean, there's so many ways of making music now. Um, it, it's still a great time to, to create, find audiences, find like-minded souls such as yourself. It's 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 lovely. Well, I think it's kind of interesting you made that point because I noticed some of the bands or some of the artists that I liked, who had done things in the 70s and possibly even in the 60s, when they got to the 80s, instead of doing what they were good at, which was kind mm. of creating their own sound. They seem to go, oh, I might copy what's kind of popular at the moment. I'm thinking of David Bowie, really. But there was also people like Rod Stewart and Robert Pollan. If you look at their solo work in the 80s, it's not that good. And I, and I still think it was kind of, they got the, the, the producer that they needed. They went for this sound because that's what they were told. And they kind of went for that, you know, rather than thinking, what do I want to do? It's like, oh, what? what's popular at the moment this is a bit of a sweeping statement but their work is pretty like mm, let's let's skip the 80s and get to something else that they did after that and and it's interesting that you even though you were young and doing your first stuff instead of you know like doing something like Jesus and the Mary Chain or something which was kind of like well you're definitely not copying that many people well, okay the Velvet Underground I suppose but you know there was there was like it was quite radical wasn't it and rather than trying to sound slick and, and sort of smooth. But I think the problem as a musician, see, you know, a, a musician in the, in the mid 80s would find it really hard to copy Robert Palmer or Rod Stewart 
or David Barrett because it was all about production. So, you know, we would rehearse in a basement with, with hardly any light. Uh, we'd have old amps and the, the drums would be next to the guitar amp and you just make a racket. And therefore, um, by the very nature of the equipment you're using, you're, you're playing was essentially guitar pop. It's like the Beatles in the cabin, isn't it? And, and yet, um, you know, David Bowie could have walked into any studio around the world and produced amazing music, um, regardless of the quality of the songs. Yes. And we didn't understand that. We, we didn't have the money to buy synthesizers or find good producers. I, I wish we'd known how, <laughs> because we wouldn't have spent so long in a smoky basement. Um, you know, but, you know, I think also people in the 80s weren't necessarily trying to be in the 80s. I think you know, we were very much, I personally was into the 60s in the 80s, and I was, all my references were sort of decades earlier, and like, my guitars was 1960s guitars, and I probably had an old Valvamp, and um, I liked 60s cars, you know what I mean? So um, I've really got to like what the really commercial 80s later, and that's informed me of how to make music today. Right. And, uh, you know, I don't mind listening to Rod Stewart, Tonight I'm Yours. I think, you know, it's, it's something you can, there are merits to it. Yes, there are, I'm sure there are, there are merit. Lady Jane, was it Lady Jane? Her, his big single that he had? Baby Jane, that was it. Yeah. You know, from the, from likewise, you know, the, I mean, at the time I would have, you know, smashed the single to bits, but today, you know, maybe we're, we're more forgiving as we get older. Um, yes, that's right. Choosing his merits. I, I'm oh, very uh, keen to... Uh, to, to see the, the good side of anything. Yes, well, you know, it was the decade that I sort of loved, but I suppose I was one of those kind of, kind of whingy, lefty, you know, red wedge types who just loved all that indie pop and angst. So, um, you know, I, bands like the Redskins and um, yeah, obviously, you know, the Smiths were the, 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 the we, we loved to moan, didn't we, about everything. So, um, and that, that suited my personality. I <laughs> Mrs. Thatcher. <laughs> I mean, it was, yeah, when I, was, I watched the Star, there was an interesting documentary about Style Council the other day, and it, it tapped on that very moment where, you know, if you're a slightly lefty school kid, you would have loved uh, some of the Style Council's work, which is basically political, but wrapped up in a sort of, uh, sort of pop music. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it was, the, mo the moment they met the politicians is when the band sort of, start to think well maybe this isn't for us so they everything was a sort of flirtation and um everyone was sort of moving on quickly to something else yes well yeah i mean the 80s was quite a tricky one wasn't it really but um yes it was it was interesting but well, yeah. i don't have any particular memories of the 80s other than like i didn't even watch live aid i wasn't interested in watching it and um i'm not even sure i was around in the 80s but uh, whatever I was doing, I was doing it in my own little bubble, like, like a lot of people do. You know, they you, you create your own world, don't you? And I think that's what music does for you. You can, especially being in a band, um, if you've got a band, you, you, you're stronger. You, you, um, 
you have your bandmates and your your uh, your songs. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know you're just probably just focused on that very immediate moment that you realise is very ephemeral, isn't it? It's not going to be about you know, whether you know that at the time, especially when you're young, but you realise that it is going to be that next recording, that next single or next album and the next gig. And, you know, no one really knows if it's going to be going to last another year or another three years. But, mm. um, yes, it's quite interesting. I mean, I'm surprised how some of the 80s bands continue to attract huge audiences and um, I'm like, I saw Tears for Fears in Hyde Park a few years ago and you know I was just amazed that they 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 could I don't know what the capacity was but everyone sung along to the songs and I mean someone said the other day to me the 80s um, is as far ago is as long ago as the end of the second world war was to us in the 80s so you know the very fact that we're talking about the 80s is practically ancient history. Yes. It's, which it's is why I'm not, not really keen to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I know, well, it's, it's only 40 years ago, or, or, you know, the latter part is 30 years. So it is, it is very long time ago. And it is, like you said, it, when we were growing up, that would have been, you know, the first, we would have been, that would have been, the, yeah, the war, or the, in between the wars. So um, it's a very long time. But... I suppose I suppose we still pick over things and it still has shaped us and it's sort of obviously you know you can't get sometimes you can escape from your past but obviously in your case you know some someone from Germany with their record label said no we're going to put out your album it's a calling it's a sort of calling I think that and also before I got before we were called by the German record label I was actually getting back into music and I I'd watched a film called Sing Street I don't know if you've seen it and it's an Irish musical and it's got songs by the cure and I think Duran Duran and the jam and it's got it's about a kid who's at school and he wants to start a band become famous but some of the songs on the album are not original songs and they've been written to sound to fit into the 80s narrative but they're new songs and I was quite inspired by that the idea that you could write contemporary pop music with 80s tropes, if you like, and somehow create something new and original. Yes. So I was, I was sedu seduced by that idea, and I think that's very much what we're doing with this album is, you know, you listen to the album and you don't go, oh, well, it's an 80s album, but you are in a sort of comfort zone of the 80s without, you know, without sort of going into the wedding present or... Um, no, it's it's pop music, but it's it's recognisable. Yes, there's 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 definitely influences from yes, from ABC to the Beat. That would be fair enough, wouldn't it? Well, I I could go. I don't want to sort of take each track and go. Well, that sounds like this, but um, you know, you, we've got a sound a song called uh, My Town, which is um, a great lyric about. High Street, uh, the, the high street shops closing, and I think Paul wanted to write a political song, and it, that sounds like Tom Robinson Band meets Boomtown Rats, and that wasn't something I set out to do, but it, it's just got that kind of pop, ploddy, punk, new wave sound, which we've never done before, and therefore it, it sounds really fresh. Yes. So with a track like you've got dreaming of a better day 
Is that one you did during lockdown? Yeah, the um, this is a song I wrote actually, and it was um, I don't actually write all the lyrics, but this one I did, and I wanted to throw a few ideas in that sort of summed up the mood we were in uh, in Brexit and all the sort of divisions in society, and and then it's a it's a weird song because if you if you wrote the lyrics out, you could probably uh, identify various moments last year, and um, you could say it was prophetic, but it, it's just a mood, a mood really I'm picking up, and uh, the US elections and Donald Trump, without sort of naming names, and so, um, and it's also our first attempt at doing uh, a rock ballad, like an 80s power ballad, mm. uh, we wanted the strings, we wanted the of heavy guitar coming in at the end and, and all that so that's a bit of a departure for us and um if you'd listen to our sort of jangly pop from the 80s you'd be quite surprised we'd we've done this but um maybe, maybe this is a sort of uh the future for us sort of rock ballads who knows yes and what about don't let me go that that is a track that is um originally on our first album which we have re written and taken out the jangle and again turned it in more into more of a kind of new wave pop song um it's quite nice to sort of play around with your own material and see if you can yes it up oh, there you go so yes my turn is about your high street and then just lastly strange things can happen was that in lockdown that was that was one of the first songs we wrote after we reformed and um, I think Paul had been um, meeting lots of these ex-rock stars who were going to collaborate us uh, with this this manager I told you about. Yes. So I think he got this idea of this kind of Norma Desmond type character who was you know, big in the 80s and probably sitting in some Cokefield um, mansion somewhere dreaming of uh, his uh, when he had a hit and was going to get a band back together a bit like us. So it's a little bit like, it's about us, but maybe someone who's a little bit more um, deluded. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's quite weird. Your, your, your story has been quite fascinating, actually, hasn't it? If, if that was a, that's an interesting story that could relate directly to us. And, um, you know, it is a strange thing to be discovered. And although we're not you know, we're not um, known throughout the world. It, it is it is interesting to be, you know, a, an entity again. Indeed, it would be nice to be discovered one day. Anyway, look, that is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Dan Daniel Singh or Singh um, from Daniel Takes a Train. This has been David Eastall, the C86 Show. If you want to contact me. You can. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Thank you ever so much. Also, all these interviews have been podcast or archived, and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Check them out. They might just change your life. They probably won't. Anyway, have a great week, and stay safe. <laughs>